I have a question for you. Has anybody besides me noticed how complicated it has become to simply buy a light bulb? I mean, in the good old days, you just had to know if you needed like a 40 watt, 60, 7,500 watt, that was it. Now you got to know the voltage, the wattage, the lumens, LED, halogen, incandescent, soft white, bright white, medium white, blue white, indoor, outdoor, something called PAR that I learned the other day, not even to mention the right size bulb. It has gotten so intimidating to me to go buy a light bulb anymore. And I went, when did they change this? And nobody told me about it is the problem I have. So one day this week, Becky had informed me that a critical light in our house had gone out and I needed to replace it. Well, without letting her know, quietly, my heart trembled with fear because I was going to have the... Okay, so I took off for that most glorious of all stores called Home Depot. Hallelujah. I'm just sure that store is, that is ordained of God and we will have a Home Depot in heaven. How many are in favor? So I'm driving there to go get this. I've got the burned out bulb in my hand because I'm, you know, I've gotten over my intimidation about trying to act like I know what I'm talking about. I want one of these is basically what I'm saying. But I determined that I was not going to just stand there looking at the bays of thousands of choices so completely intimidated and lost. I was, I was a man on a mission. I had the, my burned out bulb in my hand so that I could properly replace it. I walked in the store. I mean, I was walking with purpose. I found the first person with a little orange apron on, and I said, you've got to help me. I need one of these. And so this guy said, well, I, I'm not an expert in that, in that area, but I can, I can point you to where to go. I said, well, then who, who, who is the resident expert? He said, well, it's Wes. I said, let's call Wes. Let's get Wes down here. So he paged Wes as we headed to the light bulb area, and the guy who took me there didn't act like he knew a whole lot more about it than I did. Um, and then he soon faded away, and I looked down the aisle and here came a portly guy walking with confidence, a big smile on his face, very jovial with a jumbo-sized orange apron on. And he walked toward me, and before, I just felt so comfortable with him when he was like 40 feet away that as he got to me, I thought, that is who I want to talk to. That, that guy's got, I was so relieved that, to see him that before he kind of got right up to me, I said, look, Wes, do you know how complicated it is to buy a light bulb these days? I just poured out my heart to him immediately, you know? I said, it's like everything has changed about light bulbs and nobody talked to me about it. And he stood there looking at me while I was rambling on without batting an eye and he immediately got in my face. He had not said a word. After I finished rambling, he says, but buddy, relationships are a lot more complicated today than they've ever been before. <laughs> I thought, where did that come from? <laughs> I mean, and I said, okay, you win, you win, you win. I got it, because he was right about that. As I left the store, I thought, I wonder what had been on his mind that morning, you know. My goodness, things are changing, folks. Have you noticed that? I mean, you can't even go buy a decent cassette player anymore, anywhere. <laughs> Becky sent me to the drugstore the other day to replace her little square brownie camera and to get some 32 millimeter film. You can't do it anymore. That young guy looked at me like I was from another planet when I asked him. Some of you don't even know what a little brownie camera is. Okay. 
Oh, all of these changes, they're just so complicated. And if you're like me, the ones I've just mentioned, <laughs> that's the easy stuff. Because the fact is, change seems to be taking place all around us. I have, maybe my sensitivity is heightened to it this week for whatever reason, but that has certainly been a big focus for me. It's just aware, not only in my life, but in the life of so many folks in our church, in our world, there's so much change taking place. So I, I was thinking about it a lot this week, and I found it extremely interesting that my early morning devotional time addressed this very issue. I've got a couple of different devotionals I read along with my Bible, and I was looking at a, at a book called um, by A.W. Tozier called My Daily Pursuit. I, I highly recommend it as a daily devotional. It's one of a couple that I'm very fond of. And he said this. Now, remember what my focus has kind of been this week. Tozier said this. He said, change and decay are all around us. I thought, you got that right. Regardless of where you look these days, change is inevitable. Things are not what they once were. He said, I am not one who bemoans the past for the simple reason that the past really was not as good as we remember. Remember the good old days? They weren't all that great, always. One good thing about change is that as everything changes, oh, get this, as everything changes, it proclaims the truth that the Lord is eternally the same and He never changes. Something about the way He positioned that in this devotional sort of hit me right between the eyes. I guess because of my uh, acute sensitivity to all the change taking place. And then, but you know what? He's right. There's not a shadow of turning with God. It's a theological fact, he says. It's something you can build on. And then the very next day, Tozier went on to present another idea, still on this subject of change, and, but he this time attached uh, an interesting metaphor to it. He says, he's still continuing this thought of that juxtaposition of uh, that God does not change, but we do change. That's kind of the, the framework of it all. And please think of all this by contrasting all the change that's taking place in your world right now as compared to the changelessness of God. And Tozier said it like this. He said, an apple hanging on the tree changes from green to ripe, or we would say from worse to better. However, let that apple hang there long enough, and it will then change from better to worse. And then ultimately, it will rot and fall away. Change is important in everything that is created. The operative word there being created, that's the key word. It's important in everything that is created. But when we come into the area of God, Tozier says, we are coming into the area of the uncreated. For we know that God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. Amen to that? He always was. He is now, and forevermore He shall be. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Tozier goes on to say, God cannot alter or change. In order for God to be different from Himself or change in any matter whatsoever, one of three things would have to take place. Either, speaking of God, He must go from better to worse, or from worse to better, 
or he must change from one kind of being to another. I can accept change in every area of life, but not in God. God being eternal can never be any less than he is now, and certainly he can never be any more than he is now. God is perfect. He has always been perfect. He will always be perfect, and that is why we can trust him. Somebody say hallelujah. When I ponder these ideas about the unchanging God, and I really, you know, you really begin to meditate on all of this. What's, you know, it's a simple idea maybe on the surface, but as with most things when it comes to the Lord and you meditate on, there's, there's other depths that you can plummet to find more thought, and it takes you to other places when you take the time to do that. So as I was pondering these ideas on the unchanging God, so where does that lead me? What, what, where does that take me? Honestly, it takes me to worship takes me to, to understanding that because it shows me once again how God is set apart and therefore how God is holy. Because when God is set apart, he's the changeless one. We change all the time. He's the changeless one. It sets him apart and it causes him or makes him to be holy. He's the creator. He never changes. We are the created. We change all the time. He is constant and faithful and true. We are anything but constant. We have the propensity to be unfaithful, and we are not always operating in the truth. He can be counted on. Man cannot be counted on. He can be trusted. Man cannot always be trusted. And I think it wouldn't take too long to talk with you I can speak to you one-on-one -on -one to say, so often, all of this change that we experience, it brings disappointment. In fact, I know that some of you this very day are coping with some kind of change or some kind of loss that you have encountered and you're trying to work your way through it. And I don't know, I honestly don't know why this is, talking to somebody in my office this morning. But somehow, the holiday season, have you noticed, it always seems that... that that the challenge to deal with change gets ramped up even more in the holiday season. We have plenty of folks in our fellowship who have recently lost a loved one or lost this year in the last few months, and the change in their life is so significant. And the holidays for them can be extremely difficult because you know what goes along with loss? It's this thing we call grief. Grief accompanies loss. Now, grief is, a, is an interesting word. In fact, the origin of the word actually comes from two Latin words that connect two of our English words. The grief, the two words that, they, that it really, really comes from are, are what we would call injustice and calamity. It marries those two words together when you look at it in the Greek, injustice and calamity. Because when grief comes... <laughs> There's no other way to say it. We feel like we've been ripped off. When grief comes, we feel like we've lost something. Whatever it is that we've lost, we've lost it too quickly. We weren't ready for it to be gone. We weren't ready for it to be taken away from us. This, we, thoughts like, this should not have happened, or, or why did this happen, or what else could I have done to have prevented this from happening? Whenever there is loss any kind of loss is accompanied by grief. And the sadness is deep and penetrating. 
one of the greatest books that you will ever read. In fact, if you are, if I'm speaking to you this morning, you're someone that is in a place of grief, I recommend you write this down. One of the greatest books you will ever read on grief is by the well-known author that we talk about so often, C.S. Lewis. Many of you are, are students of C.S. Lewis. And that particular book is called A Grief Observed. A Grief Observed. It was really Lewis's private journal that he, he never intended to have published or for it to be known to others. It was his journal of what he went through when his wife, Joy Davidman, contracted cancer. I think it was in the early 60s. It's his personal thoughts to the Lord through that journey. In fact, the book is very intimate, and, and many almost get uncomfortable with its reading because of how sensitive and, and private the book is. In that book, Lewis says this. He says, we were promised sufferings. They were part of the program, and, and, and here he's talking about when, when you come to Christ. We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accepted it, he says. I have nothing except that for which I bargained. But of course, Lewis says, it's all different when it happens to you. How many know what I'm talking about, what he's talking about? You think of things differently when you're the one going through the time of loss. For in grief, nothing seems to stay put. One keeps emerging from a phase, but it, it just keeps reoccurring. It's, it's round and round, and everything repeats. It's going in circles, or, 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 or dare I hope that I'm on a spiral? But if I'm, if I'm on a spiral, I'm going up, I'm, I'm going down, and I don't even know where I am. Some of you know exactly what that feels like. Because you never know how much you really believe in anything until the truth begins to come, become a matter of life and death for you. You never really know if you believe it. You never really know if it's alive in you. You never really know if it's rooted in you until it's become tested by a matter of life and death to you. Lewis says, my idea of God is not a divine idea. In fact, he says, it has to be shattered sometimes so that I can find out who the real God is. That is a raw, unfiltered, very intimate, private view from someone who literally is walking through it. And church, it's true. Sometimes God will and does shatter the idea that we have formulated about Him. God will use a situation. He will use something, even when it means loss, to get us to understand the greatness of His majesty in us. We've often looked at the book of Job, which is a story of nothing but suffering and tragedy and loss. That book, as you know, deals with people, real people. It's where God had to shatter people's opinion of Himself. It's where we find religious men trying to talk to Job through his situations and all of his circumstances through 37 chapters and trying to understand his loss. You talk about change. You talk about sudden, abrupt, unwelcomed, unwanted change. In one day, you know this, Job became homeless, childless, bankrupt, and about to lose his health. And that was 
day one. All that happened in day one. And the book of Job tells us what Job went through and how these religious leaders tried to walk him through it. But we all know this. We can counsel. We can talk. We can speak from our experience when trying to help someone. We can sympathize. We can even try to empathize. But to the one who is experiencing the loss or the sudden change in their life, when it happens to you, the feeling is deeper and different. And by the way, how many of you know there is a distinctive difference between godly counsel and just getting in the way of God's probing work in the life of the one you're trying to counsel? Let me say that again. I get challenged with that all the time. People walk in my office. Maybe we haven't seen them for a few years. They've hit the wall, and they walk in with their bundle of issues, and they plop it on the desk, and they really are saying, Pastor, would you fix that, please? That happens all the time. You want to go, well, let's look at what choices got you to this. We, We try to go maybe down that path. But there is a big difference, dear one, between giving godly counsel And having the inner discernment to know when all that you're trying to do to help fix it is getting in the way of God's probing work in the life of that person. That takes the discernment of the Holy Spirit in your life. There's a difference. To those of us who are expert enablers, we have any expert enablers in the room? To those of us who are expert enablers, To those of us who are standing by watching someone we love make the worst possible life choice or or destructive life choices, we need to, we expert enablers, we need to be very careful that before we step in to fix it, be sure that we have sought the Lord and that we have His clear permission to do so. Church, 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 church. Everything we do Every encounter that we have, we must be dependent upon the Lord. Are you awake this morning? I know this is not the hallelujah kind of shouting message. I get that. I knew that coming in this morning. It is so critical. Another rabbit trail. I read something else from another. That is this. Do you know the funeral that you refuse to go to? It's the funeral of your own independence. We refuse to go to the funeral of our own independence to let it die. We like our independence. And when I'm saying that, I mean we like to be relying upon ourselves as long as we think it's working. Rather than understanding that we need to let our independence die so that we become completely dependent upon God 24-7. I'm telling you the truth this morning. It is so easy to try to step in and fix something, but you need to be sure that you are doing it with the permission of God and that he's not trying to do something else and you're messing it up by stepping in. Never forget that the very best counsel, the very best advice that you can give is to point them to Jesus. That's the best you can give. You might 
be getting right in the way of God's sovereign work in the life of that one you are trying to help just because they know exactly how to push your emotional buttons. If God has told you to be involved, by all means do it. By all means do it. Otherwise, leave it to God to do the work that he has designed and purpose and commit that person to God in prayer. That's helping. That's really helping. That was a free bonus statement this morning. There's no extra charge for that rabbit trail. Job had a counselor who was trying to help him, and the man was clueless. Brother Eliphaz thought he had all the right answers, thought that he could relate to Job's situation because of his own journey, and he was wrong. He was dead wrong. Eliphaz did not have God's perspective on what was taking place in Job's life. Oh, uh, oh my brother Job, I, I know just what you're feeling. That's just like when Myrtle and I, or whatever her name was, did, you know, when we had, the, you know, no, dude, you don't know what Job is feeling. You're just getting in the way of God's sovereign work in Job's life, and you're making a mess. We've got to be very careful about taking our experience and projecting it onto other people. God distinctively gave you your journey. He designed the plan and the path for you. You can help, you can pray, you can try to encourage, but we must be very, very careful about taking our experience and projecting it on other people. It's very easy to assume that we are well-suited to argue situations from what we've gone through when, in fact, your experience may not relate whatsoever to the person that you're trying to counsel or help. Listen, church, God is bigger than just my world. God is bigger than just your world. God is bigger than just the sum of your experience or my experience. God's plan and design for another person may have nothing to do with what he took you through. And we must be very careful to give God wiggle room or elbow room to work in someone else's life according to his will for them, his plan for them, his purpose for them. Job's suffering had no precedence. There had been no situation like that. And God is bigger than just our own experience. And I say that to all of us who are wonderful enablers. The men speaking to Job were speaking to him as if they had the truth in the situation, when in fact they did not. And then in the end, God makes it clear that those men didn't have the truth about what God was doing in Job's, situa- uh, Job's life. Job 42, 7 says this, after the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So what's the lesson in that to us? The lesson is this, you have to give God the elbow room, that's a phrase we understand, to do his distinctive work in the lives of the people in your world. God is bigger than we are. His thoughts are higher than ours. His ways are higher than ours. And to the one who is experiencing the suffering, the grief, and the loss, be thankful that you've got a friend who's trying to help you, but they are not God to you. Don't try to put them in that place. Don't lean so heavily on an earthly friend that you completely close out the opportunity for God to work in your life and to do in you what he's needing to do in you. 
And of course we all want answers. Of course we want our situation fixed and like right now. We even expect answers. We can even feel like we are entitled to answers when the change or the loss in our life has been tragic and we have all the accompanying grief to it. And that loss could be anything. It's all kinds of loss. Loss of a loved one, of course. Loss of a job. Loss of mobility. Loss of health. Loss of a marriage. Loss of a baby in miscarriage. The loss of a limb. The loss of a bonus you were expecting at Christmas. You didn't get a raise. You, you didn't get a promotion. It could be even the loss of your mind or your parents' mind or loss of memory. The loss of a house or business. Loss of a dream. Oh my goodness, the loss of a child. The loss of security. Even we grieve when there's a loss of your integrity or the loss of reputation. So you may have found yourself somewhere on that list I just gave. So what do you do with loss? Okay, yeah, Dan, you've pointed that out, that, yeah, there's a lot. What, what, do you, what do you do? What do you do when all of a sudden something you expected to be there, someone you expected to be there is gone, and it's somehow, again, intensified by the holiday season? Well, I want to show you this morning, because I'm going to go to my text here, in Matthew 14, how Jesus dealt with with loss, our perfect example, how he dealt with loss. Because if there is anything close to ISIS that we find in the Bible, it's what Jesus experienced because his cousin was beheaded. And they paraded his head, his cousin's head around like the demonic men of ISIS do today. They literally walked around with a man's head on a platter while a party cheered. While a party thought this was a, a celebration, they took the head of a godly man who never deserved this action. We think that what we've seen on TV and YouTube and on the internet with the barbaric behavior of ISIS is something new. Well, no, it's not new. Herod was doing this way before ISIS ever even thought about it. His name is John the Baptist. He's the forerunner. He's the man that was prophesied would come and announce, prepare ye the way of the Lord, and announce the way of Jesus. He was the one who looked up and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he was the one, the very one who baptized Jesus. And here's what happens to John the Baptist. We're going to read the story with a focus on how Jesus dealt with the situation and how Jesus dealt with his own sense of grief and loss. Matthew chapter 14, I start with verse 3. For Herod had arrested and imprisoned John as a favor to his wife Herodias. She's the former wife of Herod's brother Philip. You got the picture here? Okay. He's living with his brother's wife. But see, John, the godly man, the man of God, had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry her. We see the man of God making it clear to Herod what is sin. But how many know this? When you tell people something that they are doing that is wrong in the sight of God, they're not always excited about it. I mean, can I just give a witness here? When you tell people 
That is sin, and it needs to stop before a holy God. They do not want to hear that. And they will do anything to wiggle their way out of it. So guess what? Since John had said to Herod, what you're doing is sin, verse 5, Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of a riot because all the people believed that John was a prophet. Oh, but there was a birthday party for Herod, and Herodias' daughter performed a lovely little dance, a couple of words inserted there for emphasis, performed a dance that greatly pleased him. And so he promised with a vow to give her anything she wanted. Well, at her mother's urging, the girl said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a tray. Then the king regretted what he had said because of the vow that he had made because he did it right in front of his guests, got witnesses. So what did he do? He issued the necessary orders. So John was beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a tray and given to the girl who took it to her mother. You know, my immediate thought is, what kind of insanity is this? How senseless. However old this little girl was, and we don't know, it doesn't say here. She's walking around with a man's head on a platter at a party, taking it to her mother, and everyone thinks this is okay? Verse 12. Later, John's disciples came for his body and buried it. and Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. The Bible says, in verse 13, as soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. To be alone. Can I just tell you, I understand that instinct. I understand that kind of reaction to that kind of news. When any of us hear the news that unexpected Undesired change has come to our life. Don't we all have a tendency to withdraw? It's a natural instinct. I was with a family on Friday who had to make the heart-wrenching decision to take a young 48-year-old mother off of life support. And she passed away. That family is sitting in this audience this morning. The two children... 16 and 12 of the young mother had been picked up from school, brought to the hospital. And I was standing there along with Pastor Brenda and her husband when the the father and the two teenage children stepped off the elevator to be greeted by another family member. And one family member reached to the 16-year-old girl to embrace her. But I watched as the young lady rejected the embrace, though it was from someone that she knows and loves and trusts. Momentarily, I felt a slight bit awkward for the one who was reaching out to comfort, who, by the way, dealt with the circumstance extremely well and with incredible maturity. Though I was a little awkward to view that at that moment, I had to honestly admit within my own heart that I fully understood the girl's reaction. When you are reeling from shock, When you are discovering that your life has suddenly changed forever, there is every propensity to cocoon. Yes, it's a verb. I checked it out. To insulate. There's every propensity to cocoon and to close yourself in. 
Close yourself off to everything else. Verse 13 of our text says, As soon as Jesus heard the news about his cousin, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed, and they followed on foot from many towns. John, his cousin, is instantly killed because of a crazed adulterer and a robot of a dancing daughter who's simply following the orders of her mother. She dances before Herod. Herod is intoxicated with desire. He tells the girl she can have whatever she wants. And the little girl says, because my mommy told me I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And then right there you see a beheading taking place in the first century. They kill John the Baptist. He's beheaded just like an ISIS situation that we see today. And this is the cousin of Jesus. And when Jesus hears about it, he withdraws. And he does so out of grief and out of the sorrow of loss. The loss of losing someone so special to him. Losing the very one who baptized him. Losing the very one who had announced his coming. Jesus went to a remote area to be alone. Listen to me carefully. And some of you know this at depths that many of us don't. Sometimes tragedy will paralyze you. You don't want to talk. You don't want to see anybody. You don't want to hug. You don't want a cell phone call. You don't want to answer a text. Tragedy can paralyze you. Grief causes withdrawal. Grief wants to be alone. Grief wants solitude and not company, typically. And it's Jesus himself who responds in this very way. And let us never forget, we read it so often in Scripture, he was both son of God and Son of man. And this is a clear display of Jesus being the Son of man. With every human feeling, every human response that we feel, Jesus is experiencing what he knew we would experience. You who in this very room this morning have recently suffered the loss of a loved one, just remember, Jesus suffered the loss of a loved one as well, and he lost that loved one to the hands of terrorism. But the problem that Jesus has is this. He's not only facing grief, but he's also facing the multitudes. When they realize where he is, they are following him. Here's what I want us to see this morning. Jesus wants solitude, but the multitudes want healing. Jesus wants to process the loss alone, but the crowds want Jesus. And I think this is so crucial for us to see, especially at this holiday season. Verse 13, again, as soon as Jesus heard the news about his cousin, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. And here's the problem. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. And then we have verse 14. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped back from the boat. And he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. Church, 
This is so very, very instructional to us. It is so incredibly insightful if you will listen. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I need alone time. Had a tough situation. Let's do this another day. What we see here is so incredible because what we see here is this. Listen to me. Compassion trumps grief. Say that with me. Come. One more time. His love for people, his passion for helping people completely trumps the deepness of his sorrow and the tragedy. This is such amazing instruction to us because this is one of the great ways to overcome the loss of a loved one in this Christmas season. Our tendency toward loneliness is this. Don't talk to me. I, I, I want to be alone. Give me my private time. I don't want to see or talk to anyone. How many of you have ever felt that way in your life? Come on. The rest of you aren't telling the truth. But with Jesus, all of a sudden, compassion trumps grief. Seeing the multitudes in need trumps the sadness in him. And dear friend, the best way out of the funk of grief is not through a season of loneliness, but by drawing upon the strength that Jesus and Jesus alone can give you and going beyond yourself and reaching out to do something that you can't even do in your own strength. Because it is then and possibly only then that you will truly learn that when you are at your weakest, God is at his strongest in you. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. Well, weaknesses, I have a cold, I have a bad day. No, listen to me. I'm talking about the real stuff of life. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. Our text tells us this, and he healed their sick. You and I would have said, oh, I'm the one needing healing. I'm the one who needs to be prayed for. But Jesus reaches out in the midst of his loss to bless someone else. Listen, seclusion does not fix us. Jesus fixes us. And never forget, it is in giving that you receive. It is in giving that you receive. If you will take the time and effort to look upon others and to see their need, it will truly relieve your own heart. When you start reaching to others, that junk inside of you will start to leave. Proverbs eleven twenty five 25 says this, the generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. As you refresh others, then refreshment will come back to you. It's so simple, but it's so true. As you refresh other people, as you refresh others, it will come back to you. It's in helping others that you get the help that you need. It's in reaching to others that others will reach to you. It is, encourage, it is in encouraging others that you will be encouraged. Are you facing depression for whatever reason? Dear friend, I'm not minimizing how those, those who really suffer with genuine depression but I want you to know this, I've seen this time and time and time and time again. The best way out of depression is to intentionally take your mind off yourself and your issues as valid as they are 
and do something significant for someone else. And I know that goes against the flesh. I know that. You think I haven't lived it? I know it goes against the flesh. And you'd rather me say something else. But here's the reality, and I want you to walk away with this. Compassion trumps grief. Say it again. When I mention the name John Newton, some of you may recognize it. He was a pastor who wrote a very famous song. I'm going to assume you've heard of the song Amazing Grace. Was that a safe assumption here this morning? Well, Pastor John Newton wrote it. And his church had a worship leader, just like we have Pastor Brent. The worship leader's name was William Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, Cowper. William Cowper tragically lost his mother, and it so affected his life that this godly man, this young worship leader, was for 18 months put into an insane asylum in the 19th century. So his pastor, John Newton, also a songwriter, rescued him and pulled him out because he recognized the gift that was upon the young minister of music, William Cowper. And the pastor, Pastor Newton, said to the young musician, he says, you are going to write music in the midst of your grief to bless other people. You will write songs that will bless the church for centuries to come. That in your grief and loss, you're still going to win. You will win even though you have lost your mother. Cowper was 18 months in an insane asylum where they couldn't do anything with him. But you know what broke him free? When John Newton, the pastor and author of Amazing Grace, he looked at Cowper and he says, write songs for the people. And the very first song that God gave William Cowper goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. That was a long time ago. It's still in hymnals today. It's still sung in the church today. And you know who wrote that? A man who had a sudden unexpected and tragic change in his life. A man who was not coping well with his grief. And his pastor looked at him and said, write your way, W-R-I-T-E, write your way to your healing. Give of yourself. Give your way to your healing. Reach to others on the way to your healing. Don't make this about you. Make it about touching the lives of other people. And suddenly from the man whom everyone else had given up on came a wellspring of songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And then some 300 hymns later, the more he gave, the more the healing came. He would write more songs. The more he gave, the more the healing came. Hear me, compassion trumps grief. Giving trumps grief. Christmas giving trumps depression. And in the midst of this Christmas season, you might be saying, but Pastor Dan, I don't, I don't have a husband. I don't have a father. I don't have a mother. I don't have a child. I don't have a job. Well, let me just give it to you straight and gently. I want to say this particularly gently today because I know who's here. This Christmas season is not 
just about you and your expectations of what you think you should have. And I'm going to believe that just like Jesus, compassion for the multitudes is going to trump any grieving that you are experiencing. Every one of us has lost something. And I'm telling you that the way out is giving. The way out is reaching. And you will have to do it in faith. It will go against your natural instinct. But you will do it in faith. In your grieving, send a card to tell somebody about Jesus. Take somebody a meal or take someone out to eat. But do it as unto the Lord and say, Lord, I am doing this in faith. I don't feel like it. I don't want to want to do it, but I'm doing it because I'm not going to stay in this place because I understand the principle that even when you, Jesus, were facing grief and loss, you reached out to others. And when you reached out to others, you brought healing. Do it as unto him, because that's exactly what Jesus did. And I want us to call it Christmas giving. Stand to your feet with me today, please, church. Not been a lot of shouting going on this morning. I knew that. When we come to a season like this, for many of us, there's something we want to go into hiding, particularly those who've suffered loss of any kind. But my encouragement to you today, two weeks before Christmas Day, that we're going to make a declaration that we're not going to go into seclusion and hiding. There's nothing there for you. We're going to believe today. We're going to believe that compassion for the multitudes will trump grief and that compassion will trump loss. Would you just join me in lifting your hands before the Lord as I pray a prayer of blessing over you today? Everyone lift your hands. Everyone in the house, balcony, everyone. Lord Jesus, we've looked at your word today. We found in that situation that once again you have been the example for us. You have been our teacher. You've taught us how we are to live, how we are to respond because you have faced everything that we could face and yet you did it in such an exemplary way. So it causes us once again to worship you. It causes us once again to be mindful that though everything changes around us, everything, you change not. You're always the same. So that's why we can declare your faithfulness to us today. So Lord, I'm praying for those in the house today who've suffered loss, whatever that loss has been. We've already enumerated all that. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that as they are processing that and in that place, that the Holy Spirit will bring comfort. Lord, only you can do that. You're the one who gives peace that passes understanding. You're the one who brings true comfort. Holy Spirit, would you comfort? Would you allow the presence of a sovereign, almighty, all-comforting God to surround them? And not only that, but to be their strength. As their day, so shall their strength be. As you've given them another day, Pour your strength in them to get up and to reach out to others. That's exactly what you did. Let your blessing rest upon us for this day, Lord Jesus, as we give it to you, as we come back again to pray and to seek your face, the hour of prayer tonight. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for what you're doing in us. And so we bless you in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said...